my God, she is outstanding. What strength, what courage, what power, what surrender. Oh, my God. My guest today is Raven Ling. She was one of the first home birth midwives in California. In 1970, she founded the Santa Cruz Birth Center, the first birth center in North America. Two years and 50 births later, she wrote Birth Book, a seminal piece of work which details the actual birthing experience. If you're an expecting mother or no expecting mother, it is honest. In 1972, Raven immigrated to British Columbia, where she helped organize and run the first center in B.C. Six years later, she returned to California and founded the Institute of Feminine Arts, the first non-medical school for midwifery in North America. Raven practiced in Santa Cruz, California, specializing in women's medicine and pediatrics. Now in semi-retirement, Raven teaches classes, offers externships, and sits as a board member of the Institute of Feminine Arts and Sciences, a newly opened school of midwifery in Santa Rosa, California. Growing up with post-hippie parents, and especially surrounded by midwives, I was lucky enough to be surrounded by powerful, intelligent, capable women. Women that were role models to me. Raven Lang, I'm lucky enough to say, was one of those role models. Here is my interview with Raven Lang. We start after Raven's been describing that she did listen to the episode of my sister Marina. And you told the story, which I never heard, about your dad meeting, seeing your mom uh, up at the pool, lying there naked with Adrian inside of her and and that was you know him falling in love with her the beginning of that I did not know that story yeah that's the the story I was always told that they met at the pool when my mom was you know laying out in the sun naked going to get eggs yep. from you he was going to get eggs from you and he met her yeah, yeah I remember him I remember he would cross the redwood tree and come up with a little satchel over his shoulder <laughs> and he would buy the eggs and but I didn't know the story about the pool which was Really a delightful, very romantic story. Yeah, I like that story. And, yeah. I, you know, it connects me to Alba in a, a pre-my-existence kind of way. You know, it's neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I feel like I could talk with you for hours and hours about your amazing experiences in life. And the one thing that I think has always been in the back of my mind is that I know that you were instrumental in creating home birth um, in North America and bringing her home birth back, I should say, in North America as an official thing. And, and I just wanted to kind of hear about how you went through that journey. And I'm sure you've told this story many times, but would you mind telling me a bit about <laughs> what you realized around birth? And I assume it was with Lang? It was with Lang. Your firstborn? Uh, let's see. Um, I was pregnant in... 1967, and I was a teacher at Pacific High School. I was teaching art, and Ken was also teaching art in the same uh, school. It was a high school. It was a private alternative high school, and we didn't get much money. I also had inherited two kids when I married Ken, uh, Nina and Mike, so there were four of us in the ha- in a household living in Saratoga. 
I remember when I got pregnant, the first thing I thought about was, wouldn't it be nice to have my baby at home? And I mentioned it to a friend of Ken's who happened to be an OBGYN. And he said, well, it really isn't done anymore. And if you have any physical problems, have you ever had any physical problems? And I said, well, yeah, I, I had rheumatic heart disease. And he said, never, never think about having your baby at home. And I put it behind, I, I, I let it go. At that very second when he said that, it was so, okay. I don't even know what made me think about, wouldn't it be nice to have a baby at home? But I was um, in the presence of Ken's friend, who was an OBGYN, and somehow it came up and I let it go. Because we weren't really rich, we went and we were living in Saratoga. Uh, Stanford Hospital was about, I don't know, 40-minute drive north. And they had a program there which, believe it or not, was $350 for your whole prenatal delivery and one follow-up postpartum care package. So we quickly signed up for that because that was we could afford that. And um, I was healthy and 24 years old when I conceived. I was 25 when Lang was born. And I went up to Stanford every month, which which is standard prenatal care. Mm -hmm. You're seen once a month until the end of your pregnancy. In your eighth month, you're seen twice. And in your ninth to tenth month, it's, it's based on lunar months, you're seen weekly. Is that still standard? That's standard. That's totally standard. Okay. And when I practice as a midwife, that's what, you know, it was once a month. Mm -hmm. Actually, when we practiced with the birth center, we broke those rules. People came every week because it was such a delight to be together. And all the pregnant women would, you know, get together and they would talk and share information. Like, um, for instance, you know, Estelle was pregnant. Here. Actually, Adri was born before the birth center. She was an early one. But once the birth center got going, people would come every week and they would, the women would just, you know, congregate or sometimes the couples would come, men and women would come. And eventually in time, there were kids that were running around as well. <laughs> but standard care is you get to see the doctor once a month. And every time I went to Stanford, I saw a completely different doctor because when you are in a program like that, you're getting students. Mm -hmm. Basically, you're do, you're getting residents who are doing the obstetric, uh, they're, they're month long or whatever. They're doing their rotation in obstetrics. So every month was a different male that I would see, a different white male that I would see. There wasn't a lot of information about birth at the time. There were two books written. One was by Grantley Dick Reed, physician in England. He was an OBGYN who worked in the Second World War. He wrote a book called mm, Childbirth Without Fear. And it was a wonderful book. He was um, a wonderful guy. And one of the stories that he told was he went to someone's home to deliver the baby. And she was walking around and looking out the window and he thought, well, I don't know that she's really in labor because she's not acting like it. And so he said, well, I don't even remember the story. I mean, it's 54 <laughs> years, 55 years since I read the book. But 
um, he basically said, mm, maybe you're not quite in labor because, you know, you're not, you're not crying out in pain. And she turned to him and she said, oh, is birth supposed to hurt? Wow. Somehow she'd missed that story. And what he got from that woman who was, in fact, in labor and delivered shortly thereafter was that maybe there doesn't need to be pain. And so he then associated pain linked with fear. And he wrote his the first book out about natural birth, which was called, like I said, Childbirth Without Fear. Mm-hmm. Some years later, two other guys who were French, Ferdinand Lamaze and Pierre Vallée, and what they did was they, they taught this series of breath patterns and they were proponents of natural birth. And so I read that book, Lamaze. It's basically... It's, it's, it's the uh, Lamaze method. The Lamaze method. So <laughs> right. that was the very first method that actually came out. And when I was about, oh, maybe seven months pregnant, I was told that my baby would come uh, toward the very last few days of February or the first few days of March. He, oh, he... His due date was March third. That was the um, that was the due date that the physician gave me based upon my last menstrual period, which was a completely normal menses. Um, by the way, Raven, that's so funny. I know when um, Lang's birth is because we I share know a birthday. You do. <laughs> that's so great. <laughs> I definitely so he's know a little bit late. He's a bit later. He okay. was three weeks late. Yeah. yeah, he was late. So you were at your seventh month. You're visiting your seventh month, and they're saying. Um, at some point, I remember, this wasn't what was in my head, but at some point I remember telling a doctor, in the last month that you were there, uh, you got to see, because you were going weekly, mm-hmm. those people were doing their rotation. They would be in that rotation for two or three months. And so the likelihood is you would get one of them. Okay, so if you're going in the last two months at weekly, um, you have eight visits, and there's, I don't think there were eight residents at the time doing that rotation, but you would get one of those persons. Seventh month, I learned by going to Stanford, there was a little a little bulletin board that had a nurse who was teaching Lamaze childbirth classes in uh, Palo Alto. And so I called her up and signed up, and Ken and I went up for, I don't know, three or four classes in an evening the month before Lang was due, and we learned how to do the breathing techniques. And so I felt pretty, I, you know, I had some skills that I was practicing, and, and, and I had a really good attitude. And in the last month, I remember the first time a doctor said to me, asked me any questions, the visits there were very perfunctory. They were, they were, you know, they would take your blood pressure and your weight and your urine. They would check your urine the nurse would do that. Then you'd go into the room and the doctor would palpate the baby, listen to the fetal heart tone. And in the last month, they would give you a VAG exam. I remember one of them was a young man said to me, what is your plan? What is your birth plan? And it was like, wow, this guy is asking me what my birth plan is. And so I told him, I want to have a natural childbirth. And I don't want to be given drugs. And he listened to me and he was shaking his head affirmatively. And then at some point he said, well, 
let me tell you, young lady, he said, uh, you have a very good attitude about a natural birth, and that's nice to hear. But once labor comes and the pains are strong enough, you are going to be very happy. In fact, you might be begging me for drugs. Mm. And I looked at him and said, well, I hope you're not the one who's on duty when I go in labor. Yeah. And yeah. And then I left and I remember thinking, you know, what a nasty guy he was because he, he kind of tried to shatter my confidence in my dream, my plan, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. So every week in the last four weeks that I was there, now this is Obstetrics 101 talking here, my cervix, the little gateway that has to open up to 10 centimeters in order for the baby's head to come through it and get down into the birth canal so that they can be born, I was... Um, completely what was called effaced, meaning that the tissue had thinned out perfectly. I was 100% effaced, meaning birth can happen any moment. Also, Lang was nice and low. And so each time I was there, they would say, oh, you're going to have this baby this week. This baby's ready. Well, that started mid-February that they were telling me, I'm going to have a baby, you know, I probably won't be here next week, that I was due. So in the last month of um, my pregnancy, I was getting, um, oh, impatient mm -hmm. and disbelieving. It's like, you know, what do you mean this baby is coming? You say that every week. Raven, what does it feel like to be waking up every day with a baby that's almost here? Is it hard? Uh, no, it's very exciting. I mean, you're thinking, oh, today might be the day, you know, and you're planning your day and you're looking forward to it. And you're thinking, you know, within a week, I'm going to have a baby in my arms and maybe it'll be, you know, today or tomorrow or the next day, but it'll be this week. That's what they were telling me. And by the fourth time, I didn't even pay attention. It was like, you guys don't know what you're talking about, you know. Um, nowadays, of course, it would be a different story. I would be going in for tests to see if the baby is various kinds of stress tests. And it's a very different story today. But this is 1968. <laughs> and obstetrics was pretty uh, lightweight, comparatively um, speaking, yeah. you know, to, to what it is today. At any rate, I began to, I think, get into a place of disbelief. It was like I wasn't believing what they were saying. I wasn't believing in my body because I had thought my body was telling me one thing since they told me what my body was telling me. I was kind of waking up um, a little angry or disappointed or impatient. You know, it was it was more of a negative thing. It's like, Jesus, when is this baby coming? So on the 18th of March... Ken and I decided to go to San Jose. There was a show. There was a museum opening with a very interesting show. And we went, oh, I know, about three days before he was born, I woke up one morning and had a big what's called bloody show, mm. whole bunch of blood. And I called up the hospital and I told them and they said, that's normal. Don't come in until your contractions are five minutes apart. They'll probably start labor today. Well, it didn't. The next day I woke up, another 
bloody show. Hmm. I called them up again. This is my second bloody show. They said, are you having contractions? And I said, not really. I mean, I can feel a little bit, but not really. They said, well, come in when they're five minutes apart. The third day I woke up, I had a bloody show. I didn't bother to call them. But I, I had three days of bloody show. So I knew things were pretty imminent. And so Ken and I went to San Jose, and I remember kind of feeling crampy. And we walked into the show, into the museum, which was a large show. And, uh, you know, as I walked in, I could walk perfectly normally. And then while we were going from room to room looking at each painting, the contractions started to come. And um, I remember at some point I leaned against the wall <laughs> and I said, oh, this, these are really contractions, but they weren't really five minutes apart yet. And so we left and I decided to go to Stanford since we were there. You know, we were in San Jose, which is closer to Palo Alto than going back to Saratoga and then going, coming back up into Palo Alto. So I went over to the clinic. They gave me an exam and they said, yeah, you're in labor. You're in labor. So uh, you've started labor. Why don't you check yourself in? And I said, who's on call? And the person who was on call was that guy who said I would beg him for drugs. And I said, what time is he off? What time is his, his shift over? And they said midnight. I said, okay. So this was afternoon. This was kind of late afternoon, three or four. And the Stanford campus in 1968 was very different than it is today. I know this because when Carol was um, in the hospital five years ago, the place, the tree under which I labored was still there. But right next to it was a huge parking lot and our facility. And in those days, there was nothing but grass and, and oaks. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was very beautiful. So I left. The, it was a gorgeous day. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous spring. And we left the hospital. At, I mean, yeah, I left the clinic, which was the hospital. And I said to Ken, I'm not going in until midnight. And so I found this big old oak tree and I sat down under the oak tree, leaned against it and received a lot of strength and support, literally support from it. And Kenny was wonderful. He sat there with me. I closed my eyes and I went into what I call, what I learned to call labor land. Labor land is an exquisite place of an alternate state of, an altered state of consciousness. It isn't like today. We're talking on an iPhone here and communicating. It is more like, well, for instance, when I went back to teach uh, at the high school, when I went back actually to show the baby to my high school students, all the girls ran over before I got out of the car and they said, what was labor like? What was labor like? Mm -hmm. And I reached into my brain looking, how do I tell these girls what labor was like? Well, it was 1968. It was the height of, of hallucinogenics. Mm-hmm. And I opened my eyes and they said, it's like LSD. <laughs> and they went, oh. So anyway, getting back to my sitting against the big oak, 
I went into labor land, which is an altered state of consciousness. And for me, that day, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. I was doing the breath that I was taught by the nurse in the class that Ken and I took. And it was working. I mean, yeah, it was crampy. Yeah, it hurt. But like, oh, well, it it had no bearing. It made me, it did not make me frightened. It didn't make me contract my body in, into resistance. Mm-hmm. I just surrendered to it. And I basically lifted myself above it, so to speak. And Kenny never said a word. He never touched me. He just sat right next to me. And I went deep, 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 deep into myself and into this altered state, which was, like I said, really lovely. I remember coming out of it because I was cold. And I was so deep into it that when I actually opened my eyes, the sun had gone away. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was like, oh, my God, it's evening. I had no sense of time. That's one of the gifts of of labor is that time is not what we are talking about today, right? This minute time is irrelevant. It does, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have any, it just has no relevance. (laughs) It doesn't exist, so to speak, you know? That experience, of course, of time not being there is very different than what medical practice was at the time, because there it's like, they're always asking you how many how many minutes are apart, like pulling you back into minute time. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. They are. And when I was a midwife and a childbirth educator, I said, "Don't you listen to numbers? Yeah. Don't pay any attention. That's the doctors or the midwives are talking that. That's their business, not yours. <laughs> yours <laughs> is to let go of the clock. Theirs is to watch. But your job is to release yourself from time as we know it." Okay, because, uh, you know, I mean, I I would have, I would, as a midwife, give a vaginal exam to somebody who had been laboring for a long time. And I would say, um, she'd say, what am I? I'd say six centimeters. And she'd say, oh, my God, if I'm only six, I can't make it to 10. That's what, you know, that's what time does. It it, it brings you into into another state where you begin to doubt yourself or you begin to think, um, I don't want to do this anymore. And so um, if you don't have that factor, uh, you just sort of go with the flow, so to speak. Yeah, you're in the moment. You're not thinking about the fear of the future. Yeah, You're just in the moment. You don't think what just happened and you don't think what's about to happen. You just stay right there in the moment. And that's where I was. I mean, nobody told me to do that. It just was a natural phenomenon. Yeah. And so when I opened my eyes and I said, oh, my God, it's evening. No wonder I'm, and I felt my arms, you know, they were, I was getting cold. Yeah. And Kenny said, oh, your contractions are coming pretty, pretty quickly. He says, we should go in now. And I thought, mm, I don't think so. I'm waiting <laughs> till midnight. And so we had a friend who lived in Palo Alto, who was the English teacher at the high school. And so we knocked, we went over to Warren's house, knocked on his door. And he took one look at me and said, oh my gosh, you know. And I said, can I hang out here till midnight? And he said, yep. He said, I'm going to go to the movies. He and his wife were off to the movies and they gave us their house. And I laid down on their bed. And at 11 o'clock, Kenny was begging me. My contractions were coming very quickly, very, very quickly. And he was saying, 
baby's going to come any minute. I know the baby's going to come. Please, please, let's go. We got in our little MGB convertible. We drove over to the hospital, and I waited till about 11.20 before I was admitted. Uh, when I was in labor, first of all, they insult you like crazy. They give you an enema. They shave your pubes. Ah. They ask you a million questions. They put you in a bed. And Ken was with me. And I kept, I was a dancer. You know, I was this 25-year-old dancer. I danced my whole life. And so I would get up. I would stand by the bed and I would be moving my body. And twice they came in and they just flipped out. you got to get back in that bed. You can't stand up. If we catch you standing up again, your husband goes out. You don't get to have him. They, so they, they were punitive. Threatening you. Yeah, they were threatening me. The other thing is that, you know, there is nothing that the human does ever. Well, the most intense thing the human ever does, according to scientific analysis, is get born. And the next huge thing that the human body does is have a baby, is go into labor. And labor is like a marathon. I mean, you've seen it, you know, mm -hmm. it is a marathon. And when people are in marathons, they get to drink water, right? Because they get dehydrated. Yeah. Well, this, they wouldn't let me stand up and they wouldn't give me water. And they would bring me a little ice chip. I'd say, please, I just want a glass of water. No water is allowed. So I went through labor from midnight. And I didn't get that bad doctor. I got another one. And, you know, the rules were that I had to basically lie down and, uh, and only get an ice chip every now and then. When I was finally 10 centimeters, which was probably just about 4 o'clock in the morning. So I labored four hours mm -hmm. while I was in hospital. They wheeled me into delivery. And I remember saying... And I didn't know anything about labor, except I knew the three stages. I knew that once you got to 10 centimeters, you then had uh, the second stage of labor, which is the pushing of, of the baby out. And I didn't know how long it would take, but I assumed it would take a while <laughs> for a baby to come down the birth canal. And so as soon as I was 10 centimeters, they, they put me into delivery and um, they were screaming at me, push, 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 every time I had a contraction. Everybody was just screaming. It was, it was like a, a baseball game or something, you know. And I was pushing my brains out in my body, but there wasn't enough time for Lang to be moving down. He was a normal-sized seven-and-a-half-pound baby. And so the doctor gave me what's called an episioproctotomy, which goes from the posterior wall of the vagina all the way through the perineum and into the anterior wall of the anal sphincter, and um, which is a really nasty thing to do oh, to yeah. anybody. But he was learning how to suture an anal sphincter, so I guess because I was taking a while for second stage, he decided to just cut me. By the way, when I gave birth, both arms and both legs were strapped. And then Lang was taken away immediately. He was put up so I could see him upside down. And then he was taken away to maybe 10 feet away from me and put into a little isolate where they cleaned him off and did what they did. And I was straining my neck to see him. You were strapped down? You were tied down? Completely tied down. Arms and legs. This was normal. Completely normal. Every woman was, was strapped down in 1968. Wow. That was obstetrics. Yeah. 
I mean, this is nothing, nothing new. This is just, and I knew that they did that. Well, it just, it, it sounds so horrible. I mean, I just yeah, can't imagine doing this. And you're on your back. I mean, you know, really with, with, with natural birth, gravity is a tremendous aid. And this is like anti-gravity. <laughs> hello. Hello. <laughs> and so anyway, um, after he finally, it took a long time for him to suture because the anal sphincter is, hold on a second. Here comes Carol. Thank you. Um, so where was I? Uh, anal sphincter is hard to suture. Yeah, it's, it's hard to suture up. It took a long time. And after I was finally sutured, Lane was, of course, long gone. He was in nursery. And rooming in didn't yet exist. It was something that people were beginning to talk about. And you know what else didn't exist in 1968 is the word bonding. Oh, my God. Yeah. Marshall Klaus had yet to coin it. If you look in the birth book, Lyle, do you have a copy of my book? I do not have a copy of your book with me. No. I think it stayed with... I think it stayed with uh, my first There wife. is, I think actually it might even be opposite the page where your, mo- your mother's in labor, but I, I can't remember offhand. There is a piece that I wrote called Imprinting and the Formation of Motherly Love. I think that was the name of, of, of the piece that I wrote. Because the only thing that we had at the time to understand anything about bonding came from the research of, oh God, I think a, a guy named Lorenz, Carl Lorenz, maybe, who was studying ducks and birds, and they were they were uh, studying basically bonding, but they called it imprinting. Right. And so, you know, as far as obstetrics, nineteen sixty eight goes, they they didn't know that those first hours were significantly important to the mother baby diet. They had no idea. So babies were taken away. Uh, routinely and put into the nursery. They were, you know, cleaned and swaddled and separated. Mm-hmm. And then I went into maternity with uh, another woman who was very drugged and she was, she was going like that because she wasn't in her conscious mind. So that was kind of weird. And um, the sun was coming up. I said, something is really wrong. Yeah. Penny had been sent home. My little one was in some room with a whole bunch of other babies. And there I was in a room with a person I didn't know who was moaning with coming out of the general anesthesia. But I just knew something was wrong and I didn't know to look for it or to question it. I just felt it. I just felt. And then I told them that I was going to nurse my baby. Another thing that you might find really fascinating is that when Lang was born, I had never seen ever a person nurse a baby. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Because nursing wasn't something that was done. So we were breaking all kinds of, of rules and, and rituals. And so I said, you know, I'm going to nurse my baby. And that was unusual. So they would bring Lang into me every four hours and he would be swaddled up. And here's this little white baby with, you know, white hair and white skin. And here's me, this dark, dark woman, young woman with jet black hair and olive skin, you know. Had I not seen him at birth and recognized our features, they would bring him into me and say, oh, I'm in the wrong room. I'd say, no, you're not. Oh, my God. Because, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know they, they have a little, um, a little band on his arm and my arm that match. 
And so, of course, you know, this this is to prevent get them giving the wrong baby to the wrong woman. But, you know, they would come in and he would be all wrapped up and they would say, you have 20 minutes to nurse him. And if you don't succeed, we're going to nurse, we're going to feed him um, in the nursery. So don't unswaddle him. You just get busy. You want to nurse, you just get busy and you nurse. <laughs> That's not how nursing works. <laughs> There was no such thing as a consultation or one of the nurses showing me how to do it. But fortunately, the way my body worked in labor, which was perfectly, uh, it also worked in Lang, worked perfectly with nursing. And he latched on right away. And in 20 minutes, you know, and I remember pulling his little fingers up and looking at his hands and I I really had imagined that I was going to have a female, so I really wanted to to see that he was male. I wanted to to let that vision go into my psyche yeah. because I kept thinking that of him as a her. I had a name for a girl, but I didn't have a name for a boy. I needed to see that baby naked, but yeah. God forbid I unswaddle him what punishment I might have. When we were 48 hours postpartum, I got to go home, which was very early. And that was when I um, I took all of his clothes off and I, you know, got in bed and we were skin to skin and... You got to meet him. I got to meet him and we got on with the relationship of mother-son, yeah. which was, you know, wonderful. And so when I had my eight-week visit, and by the way, it hurt me so much to move my bowels. Mm. Oh my God, I would have to go into my labor breathing in order to relax my sphincter enough to release the contents of my bowels. It was so painful. And I'm thinking, this is not right. I mean, you hear the stories of people in China in the fields putting their baby, having a baby, putting the baby on their back and continuing to work. It's like, forget it. Yeah. I couldn't, I mean, I was, you know, I had this huge incision that was very painful. And so I knew that was wrong as well. How common was the incisions? Very uncommon. Very, very. I think that I was supposed to get that because I was supposed to change the course of obstetrical care. And if my insult hadn't have been so profoundly awful, yeah, I may not have worked as hard as I did to understand what happened to me. Well, I like that way of thinking about it. That's nice. <laughs> There's a reason for it. You know, it's like most, a lot of the people who initially went into birth had some serious insults and said, you know, this isn't right. Something is wrong. And they set out to learn some lessons. And eventually they, many of them became the first midwives in North America. Mm -hmm. You know, if nothing happens, if there's no if there's no trauma and everything is perfect, you go along with life. You get up the next morning, you make breakfast, life is good, and there's no need to lift up every rock in the garden and examine it. You know that young prick of a doctor that said you're going to beg him for drugs? Yeah. It's like that was a threat. It's like, if you don't beg me for drugs, you will wish you had begged me for drugs. I mean... Obviously, if you're going to tie a person down and mutilate them and take their baby away from them, not let them touch their baby, yeah, you're going to have to drug someone to do of that. Of course. It seems like that's the only way that would make sense. In order for doctors to be in control, 
and feel like they are the powerful ones. Um, drugging a woman uh, puts you in that position. Yeah. Because if you think about it, I mean, you've seen your children born and maybe you've seen other children born as well. But mm-hmm. when you see natural birth and you see a woman undergoing labor, when a man, when a good man witnesses his partner facing the marathon yeah. as tough as it, as it gets, they say, oh, my God, she is outstanding what strength what courage what power what surrender oh my god she is on a pedestal i love her 10 times more than i ever imagined i could love her watching this happen so birth is powerful if you listen to women oh that's what you hear it's power yeah okay well doctors don't like that uh, uh, uh. They don't want women to be powerful. They want to be the ones in power. Drugging a woman takes away their power, yeah. which then puts it in their hands. Anyway, when I was eight weeks postpartum, I went to my postpartum goodbye doctor checkup. And I had 13 questions. And I actually saw the doctor who caught who who gave me the EPCO proctotomy and delivered Lang. And the only question he could answer, the only one, was why I couldn't have water. The rest of the answers he couldn't give answers to? The, he he just he just shook his head. He didn't know Jack. Whoa. He didn't know he knew nothing. And so as I drove home, I was thinking I have to understand this for myself. Number one, I have to understand that altered state of consciousness. Where did I go? How did that happen? You know, why was it so absolutely delightful until, of course, I got in the hospital? You know, what was that state of consciousness about? Um, Why could I not stand up? Why did my body want to stand up? Why did my body want the water? You know, why was I not allowed this or that? I mean, I had all these questions and uh, there were no answers except the water answer, which is because they don't let you have water because if they have to do surgery, which in those days was only six to seven percent, now it's 35 percent. A third of the women are surgery in order to have babies. I'm not sure of the statistics in the last year or two, but it's probably worse. I mean, worse. It's, It's What's what's that from? Having babies older? That is a piece of it, but mostly it has to do with they're monitoring you. They're, they have this major monitoring system going on, and um, any little uh. any little thing that looks like it's a question, they section you. Or if you've got a, a doctor who's tired and doesn't want to sit there all night because she or he promised that they'd be there, then they will speed things along and usually when you speed things along you can put a baby into distress and it's it's um it's a domino effect yeah yeah, they begin they they begin to mess with you and then they need to take charge Mm -hmm. if they leave you alone they don't need to take charge okay and you have to get really special people to leave you alone i mean now there were no female obstetricians in in the 60s none 
But yeah. now I, I suspect there's probably 60. I don't know. It'd be an interesting uh, Google question. What's the percent of gender, you know, for obstetricians and gynecologists in North America? I, I suspect there's a huge, maybe 70% are women. You know, I mean, women have gone into medical school. It's, it's a very different time now. But so anyway, when Lang was about, and I, I kept talking to Kenny about it, and he got tired of talking about it. And I didn't know who else to talk to. I didn't know anybody else who had a baby. Yeah. And so we moved to Alba Road when Lang was six months old. Before we switch to that, I just looked it up. U.S. National Library of Medicine and National Institute of Health says that currently over one third of overall physician workforce are women and 54.5% of practicing obstetricians and gynecologists are women. This trend is even more pronounced among young obstetricians and gynecologists. In 2016, 83.1% of residents and fellows are women. Far out. So it's getting better. I wasn't too far off. Yep. Yep. Well, bravo. This doctor couldn't tell you why you couldn't stand up. He didn't even have a reason for that kind of thing. Uh, no, no, oh, there was wow. nothing. There were rules and I had to follow the protocol, period. And the thing about that that just is so ingrained in us is that when you have something going on with your body, you go see doctors. And when they tell you what to do, you go, oh, they're the ones that know what to do. So you listen to them. Like, that's the general practice. So the idea that you went through this whole thing off that faith of our culture and then afterwards found out that all these things that you did you know you wanted questions on they didn't even have answers for right is a really shocking thing as well yeah yeah i remember one doctor who taught me quite a bit he was a doctor at stanford and i i loved him he was a wonderful guy and delivered i don't know maybe 10 20 000 babies you know he had his whole life there and one time I asked him, I said, now, when the woman gets up on her hands and her knees and the sisiput is, and I begin to talk about the skull of the baby and the pelvis of the mother. Mm-hmm. And I was asking where this rotation, and he looked at me and I said, can you explain it to me? And he smiled and he closed his eyes and he said, no, I can't really. He said, I, I just trust that it works. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I got to be able to understand those things for myself because people were having babies standing up or squatting or on their hands and their knees or bending over or on their sides. Whereas in the hospital, everybody is lying down with their legs up in the air. Right. Okay. And so so he understood that. But when I said when they're on their side, when they're on their this, and I was trying to understand the adaptation of the fetal skull through the maternal pelvis. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they didn't have answers. They just didn't have answers. Like I said, there was no such thing as bonding. They didn't have answers about maternal infant attachment. Wow. Or, yeah, it was like it, it, it's, it's another science. I think it's really shocking that the one experience of that in medical or scientifically they had the point is they could see that in in birds, there was an important factor there, <laughs> which is like, if you want to talk about intelligence that is completely different as people as much as possible, go for birds. <laughs> it's like, we're totally different. But that was the only inkling at that time. Yeah, oh, there were there were some primate studies, too, because in 1960, I went to the World's Fair and I saw a very, very powerful study. Uh, it was in this huge pavilion and they were working with rhesus monkeys and three different kinds of surrogate mothers. 
One of them was a cloth mother who had a baby uh, bottle behind her cloth body. I think I've seen this study. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, they were working with, they were working with primates. They were working with others, but it wasn't until Marshall Klaus, uh, who was a pediatrician and a famous doctor who recently died. He died, I don't know, five years ago, something like that, maybe less, um, as a very old man. And he was one of my teachers. I was able to meet Marshall at some point. And he was the one who coined that phrase. I mean, Marshall began to study the importance of maternal infant attachment. And, and he actually sought my knowledge out because as he said to me one day, oh my God, I have this study where we have the baby with the mother for 10 minutes before we take the baby and wash them and dress them and put them in the nursery. We have the baby with the mother who gets to touch the baby and hold the baby for 15 minutes before we take it away. We have another one where the mother doesn't get the baby at all, like what happened to you. He said, but never, Raven, never did we think to leave the baby in the mother's arms. <laughs> he said, it, it, because I was saying I, I'm, I want to go to medical school. He, he said, I'll, I'll get you into my medical school if you want, he said, but don't go, please. Because it, he said, it's only people with the unprepared mind, so to speak, who are like you who were able to allow nature to take its course without thinking that they had to do something mm -hmm. instead. He said, you know, he and this other guy named Barry Brazelton, they were both famous pediatricians. They had a practice together and they had all these, um, they had all these experimenting going on in, I can't remember anymore. South America. I think Guatemala was one place mm -hmm. and Greece was another. And they were taking all these children who had no mothers and they were uh, putting them in these orphanages and having one of the orphanages, the, they would hire a woman to be the surrogate mother for that baby for six months. In another one, they would have shifts. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they had all these different ones, but he said they never let the baby stay, uh, you know, into the uh, arms of the mother from birth on. They always interfered with the birth. Well, fast, you know, so, fast anyway. forward uh, to when um, I had children. I, my first child was 20 years ago. It's 20. And in that situation, even all the tests they want to do, of course, you know, they want to check ears and weight and all those things. That's all in a cart that comes into the room. And it's only, you know, four feet away from mom. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So th it's such a different environment. And that was, of course, completely. in a hospital, you know. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Well, we, um, my generation, those of us who were in our mid to late 20s and around that time at the late 60s, early 70s, we really did it happen all throughout North America. We really changed the whole paradigm of uh, of birth in, in yeah. North America. I mean, it it was a about faith. You know, it was a real shift. Were you thinking that you were going to have the kind of impact that's happened in, in the hospital system, the doctor system? No way. No way. Yeah. My story no as a way. child growing up around all these midwives, because that's the property, you know, had nurses and midwives around. Um, and my mother was very like all, all the stuff about birth. I learned when I, I just grew up with that because I was surrounded by right. it. But I always had this feeling that it was 
getting away from the system was the most important piece of that. And so when I went in to check about when my wife, my first wife and I were uh, pregnant, when she was pregnant, um, I was pretty like, we got to be at home because the doctors at the were are bad. <laughs> I had that in my mind. And then, of course, I learned that actually, no, in that time, the entire system had transformed. Yeah, it had transformed. So you didn't know you were going to transform the system. Nope. You just knew that you had to give a better choice to mothers. Yes. Yes. We wanted, we set out once we realized that women could birth on their own, so to speak, without all this interference and mother and that babies were completely capable of breathing, even if they had little mucus. I mean, we learned how to deal with those simple things, uh, providing everybody was healthy. I mean, we only worked with healthy people. And when you're in your 20s and early 30s, for the most part in North America, unless you come from really impoverished areas, people are healthy. You know, and it was a healthier generation because we weren't screen addicted. Right. And we also weren't as soda addicted. There wasn't as much sugars. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There wasn't as much garbage food as there is today. Yeah. And there wasn't a fast food. I mean, I never had a fast food meal. Well, I probably only had a few. I can count them on one hand in my whole life. And I'm 80 this year. But looking back, my mother never opened up a frozen dinner and stuck it into an oven or, or a package that she put into a pot, you know, but my mother is European. Did your mother have a home garden? Did you have a home garden growing up? We had, uh, my mother always had um, oregano and thyme and parsley in her garden always, but, and they were, uh, but beyond that, she didn't grow, she didn't grow food and she didn't grow flowers. She just had some herbs. Yeah. Same thing with my, my nana, my grandmother. And um, my Italian grandmother, my Irish grandmother, I haven't a clue what she has in her garden. But because um, I wasn't really raised with my father's family. But you were raised with food is was was something that came from land. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was I was raised uh, with uh, my mother didn't speak English. So she was eight. And some of her sisters and her mother never spoke English. And so, you know, she was, she was a very old world. Yeah. And so I, I grew up as a child from the old world, so to speak. I, even though I'm second generation, my mother was born in this country. She wasn't conceived in this country. She was actually born just when my grandmother arrived in this country. But she didn't learn English, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so I'm more of a first generation type person than I am second Anyway, when I moved to Alberta, I heard of some women having babies at home. I heard about it because Fred McPherson was the biology teacher at Pacific. The same high school you were teaching at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the high school. And so I got to know his wife, Roberta, and she had some girlfriends who were having babies in the mountains right then and there. And I said, are you kidding? And she said, no. I said, I got to meet these people. So she told one of them and that woman came to visit me. She was a hippie if we ever saw a hippie. I mean, she was living in her little VW van with her little boy, Dabe. His name was Dabe and he looked just like Lang, little white haired, white skinned, blue eyed child who was at her breast, just like Lang was at mine. And she told me that there had been 16 births at home in the mountains blew my mind 
Yeah. And I said, you have to take me to one. Please, you have to take me to one. She was a very interesting lady. I lived in the Salima house at Alba. No, yeah, that's where I lived. It was in the Salima house uh-huh. at Alba Road. This is, you know, long before your birth. And there was one payphone in the main house downstairs. But other than that, nobody had a phone. And so that afternoon, this woman, Deanna was her name, said, oh, I think I can feel the vibration that my friend is in labor. I'm going to have to go check up on her. I don't remember if she called her from the payphone or we just hopped in her car. And I said to Kenny, here's Lang. I'm going away. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. (laughs) I said, can I come? And she said, yeah, sure. So we drove off to uh, another mountain home in the valley. And there was a woman in labor and a lot of people were there. I'm going to guess, yeah, 20. And it was a kick-ass hot day. I mean, really hot day. And it was fall and one of those autumn summer days, you know, that was kind of a heavy heat day. Where you can really smell the redwood duffs baking in the sun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She was on the floor in a mattress, on a mattress, and her partner was with her. And a lot of people were sitting in the room and they were smoking some cannabis and, and she was in labor. And I couldn't believe that I, here I am in this room. And the doors were open, the windows were open, as much, you know, as much heat as she could let out. Um, And at some point, she said, it's too hot in here, everybody has to leave. And so I was crushed. Yeah. But I knew nobody. All I knew was the lady who had come to visit me that day, Deanna. And so we went into the big house and there was a big, huge, big pot of beans and tortillas and guacamole and you name it and wine and beer and more pot. And everybody was having a grand old time. And it was, you know, evening by now. It was a late evening. And I thought I didn't come to I I didn't come here to be at a party. Yeah. I came here to witness labor. So I left the house. I quietly went back to the to her room and the door was still open and I peeked my head in and the father of the baby looked and he saw me he didn't know me from a hole in the wall and he said oh come in oh wow come in so I quietly went and I got down on her mattress and he said to me I will always remember he said the conscription's are very hard. He meant the contractions. Ah, uh, yeah. But he said the conscriptions. So I knew I knew that he had a certain lack of knowledge. And I didn't know about her. I had no idea. Did she have classes? Did she read books? Nothing. She was in hard labor. Yeah. And so she opened up her eyes, and I put my hand in hers, And I introduced myself and I said, I have a 10 month old son at home and I came here to witness birth. Would you allow me to sit with you and witness you? And she said, yes. 
And so all through the night, it was only I who sat at her side and her husband. Actually, he left and he went and had dinner and then he came back, but nobody else came. And I watched her. And of course, labor wasn't that far from me. I was able to vicariously jump right back into my experience. And I could feel what she was feeling. I saw that she was in the same altered state of consciousness. She was not fighting. She was surrendering. She was not fearful. She was trusting. Yeah. You know, and when she wanted to have a a quart of water, she drank it. And when she wanted to have a few bites of a fruit, she ate it. But for the most part, she laid with her eyes closed and she was in labor land and she was beautiful. And around maybe four o'clock in the morning, the midwives, there were two of them. Deanna had a, a sidekick. The two midwives came in and the mother was in second stage and they said, oh, the baby's coming. And they went back in the house and they brought I don't remember what they brought, pot of water and some scissors and some <laughs> mm-hmm. something to tie so, the cord with, sure. you know. And with that, some of the people had stayed through the night and the room filled up again, mm-hmm. at which point I left her bedside and I went and I became a fly on the wall mm-hmm. because I wasn't part of her inner sanctum or her friendship. But um, I watched her give birth. I watched the midwives receive this child. I watched the child go into her arms. I listened to her voice and the father's voice and what it sounded like. I looked at everything. I I couldn't believe it. As a matter of fact, when that baby was born, as the head was crowning and coming through, the rooster crowed. <laughs> And that was the very first time of probably a hundred births after that a baby was born with the crowing of the rooster. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the rooster would start to crow and I, at some point I think, okay, <laughs> you're going to have to hurry up if you want this baby born in the next 20 minutes while he's crowing. And sure enough, you know, the baby would be born and the rooster would be crowing. Uh, what, what were the voices of the mother and the father? What was it? What were their voices they like? They changed. So that, for instance, when I became a midwife, and even that that night, I was her midwife. I didn't know it, but every once in a while she'd say, oh, oh. So she'd do this and she'd open her eyes and I would look in her eyes and say, you're doing beautifully, beautiful. And that's all she needed. And she'd go back into her labor land and that, that that would last for another 20 or 40 minutes, at which point she'd have another contraction that would knock her over. And she'd go, oh, 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 and I'd say, good, good. I can see the baby's moving. That's all she needed. Yeah. That's all she needed was a little support and encouragement. And, you know, we're in the hospital when you go, ah, ah, I don't think I can do this anymore. They go, don't worry, honey, we got this medicine for you. So the, vo- the parents' voices changed? So, so what the mother does is if the mother is pushing, she might be grunting and working and rah, and then the baby is born and you hear, oh, look, 
Look at you. Oh, my goodness. Look at you. Hello. <laughs> so yes. when you think, you know, of what does a neonate hear? What do they see? What do they experience? Well, there's a lot of theory that the babies can't really visualize or focus their eyes until X amount of time has passed, or they don't recognize various things, but they recognize their mother's voice, their father's voice, or their sibling's voice, or the dog. They recognize all of that because they've been hearing it inside their mother. But when the mother greets her baby, there's a lot of... um it's it's very sing song. It's very tonal. Mm-hmm. Hello. It isn't hello. Is this Mary? It's hello. Are you Mary? Are you really Mary? That's what you'll hear. It's song. It'll be this low resonance with high um, volume. Uh, not volume. That's the wrong word. Um, um, tone. Yeah. Okay, it'll it'll be like when you hear like Thai spoken mm-hmm. or or Chinese spoken. You know, Cantonese has twenty eight tones. Mandarin has four tones. So I could say Lyle. Mm-hmm. I could say Lyle. I could say Lyle. I could say Lyle. Those are four tones with one word, Lyle. Yeah. Okay, that's how the mother speaks. She speaks with high tones. And the other thing she did they, they said that a mother does is she takes her whole hand. This is what Marshall couldn't believe I knew. Me, this little midwife from nowhere, is telling him what women do naturally. He's going, oh, my God, don't go to medical school, please. <laughs> we need your eyes. We need your mind. What the mothers would do is they would take the, uh, the fingertips. They would take their fingertips. And they would put the fingertips on the baby's head and begin to stroke in a downward fashion. Like if they they would go to the head, they would stroke down toward the ear or maybe toward the back of the ear or down toward the cheek. They wouldn't stroke from the chin up. And they wouldn't use their whole hand. And they wouldn't use their thumb or their finger. They would use four fingertips very Mm -hmm. gently. So all of this, is communication that we don't quite understand yet, yeah. but we're, we, we understand a lot more than we did in the 60s, certainly. But, um, you know, so I was witnessing this. And at that point, my milk was coming right through my clothing and squirting <laughs> out. And I said, I got to get back home. You know, and so when the baby was about an hour old and the baby was wrapped up and the Placenta was born and the cord was cut and the midwives were ready to leave. I went home and I sat down and I looked at my questions and that woman had answered every single question. (laughs) And I set out to be a childbirth educator and that was the beginning of my, that was the beginning of it. So that's the story. Thank you. That's lovely. It makes so much sense in the sense that of course the mother's going to know how to do it. That's how we're here. Like, exactly. <laughs> like, I exactly. mean, we were, we were giving birth a long time before we were writing things down, before we were maybe you know, talking. Like, of course, it's part of the innate quality. I remember seeing a, 
whenever you see a picture of like a, a large animal give birth, you know, like a deer or something, you see that the mother immediately like it, you know, stands up, turns around, starts licking the baby all down automatically. And it's like, well, of course it's like, it has to do that or the whole thing wouldn't work. Like the, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And we totally lost that. I had one mother where I, I said to her, you know, the first hour after birth is just, it's delicious. It's completely delicious. So she comes back after she has the baby and she says to me, oh my God, Raven. She said, you were right on. I said, about what? And she said about how delicious it is. I said, isn't it? Isn't it? And, you you know, you just don't get that in the hospital. She says, no, they won't let you lick a baby in the hospital. I said, what do you mean lick a baby? <laughs> <laughs> she says, what do you mean? Deli- what do you mean delicious? I said, I was using it figuratively. She said, oh, <laughs> I thought you meant to taste them. And I said, no, it never occurred to me. She said, well, you know what? She said, I licked her. I licked her. And it was the most wonderful thing. She said, it was delicious. And I cleaned her. I totally cleaned her. Wow. And then I had, this is jumping another story. I had a young woman who was coming to see me twice a month. She was pregnant. She was on Medi-Cal. The father of the baby was dead. He had died during the, she was a kid. She was 18 years old. Mm. It was the first birth that Lang, as an adult, attended because he was apprenticing to me at the time. And he and she became close friends, and she invited him to the delivery. Well, after the baby was born, in the first week, the baby got what I call gunky eye syndrome. And uh, that's basically just a little infection in the eye. And the way that we treat it in, in Western medicine is to give an antibiotic eye drop and it clears it up. It's just basically um, some bacteria. And you can see it because it's gunky eye. It gets a little bit of green crust and a little bit of pussy discharge. And, um, and so she came to me and she said, look, you know, Elijah has, has this condition. I said, ah, piece of cake. And I said, it'll be gone. You know, in 48 hours, it's history. Well, she comes the next week. She says, it isn't gone. I think, really? So I give the baby a little bit more aggressive treatment. And I said, I want you to call your midwife. That lady, that midwife is gone as well. (laughs) She died a few years ago. Um, I said, call Roxanne, and um, I want him to have a, another um, antibiotic ointment in the eye. She had, she had, baby already had one shot of uh, antibiotic ointment. And so Roxanne came and said, okay, you know, and she gave the baby another treatment of the antibiotic in the eyes. And so she came to see me the next week. Baby still had gunky eye. I said, I want you to go see this osteopath. I think that there's some obstruction through the neck or maybe in the duct that we're not, I'm not able to deal with. This is very, very unusual. She goes to see Dr. Lay. He does his, his um, treatment and she comes back the next week. Now the baby's a month old and it's nasty. Mm. And I said, I want you to make an appointment with a GP and the baby probably needs to take 
um, internal, you know, antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So she was living in a place that was really off the grid, you know, no electricity kind of place. And it had um, a pond, it had a little water area. So she, the next day it was warm. She goes out to lay in the sun and she's got her little one month old baby with her. And she hears, mew, 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 mew. So she gets up and she sees behind this bush is a mama cat. And she's got some kittens. Mm-hmm. And the kittens have got gunky eye syndrome. And the mama's licking the eyes. And so this young woman says, well, if mama's licking the eyes of her kittens, maybe that's what I should be doing to Elijah. So she licked the eyes, and in one day, the infection was gone. <laughs> so, I mean, it might have been two days, but it, 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 it's what worked. Yeah. So, you know, when you take away these natural instincts, which might be, you know, kissing the baby, and you're kissing the baby, you've got all this various, you know, enzymes in your saliva and bacteria in your mouth. Yeah. And, and uh, the baby, you know, has various, I mean, you're, you're seeding them. You're seeding the babies with your microbiome. Yeah. We have a microbiome on our skin, in our mouth, in our vaginas, in our nose. I mean, it's like, you know, the baby coming out gets seeded uh, through a vaginal birth with a microbiome, which we also didn't know the word of in 1968 right. or 1978 or 1988, for that yeah. matter. And so, you know, you take away these natural touches, natural kisses or licks or you know, contacts. Yeah. You don't know how much you're interfering. Yeah. It's interesting because, of course, we had this massive win when we decided that we had to get our, and we really built cities and stuff. We started dealing with cleanliness and washing and getting rid of our feces and as much as possible. And all these things became this idea of, oh, we got to protect ourselves from all this stuff. And so then we started more and more like that to the point where we were not, we, yeah, we forgot that we needed, we never really knew that we needed this stuff. Right. There's somebody named Dr. Axe who wrote a book called Eat Dirt. <laughs> Deep Dirt? And Eat Dirt, Eat Dirt. Because he's talking about, like, for instance, I have a greenhouse. And in my greenhouse, I have a lot of green things like spinach or more spinach growth close to the ground. But let's mm. say chard or kale that grow straight up, yep. you know, if you cut them at the bottom and they're not in the, in the soil itself, he's saying, don't wash it. Don't wash the food coming out of your garden if it doesn't need to be washed because it has a microbiome. Yep. You know, we're so stuck on sterility and cleanliness and so forth that we're washing away. I mean, you know, it's like Get your fingers in the earth. Yeah. Let your hands get dirty. There, there are studies that show children growing up with cats and dogs uh, have a greater immune system mm -hmm. than those who are growing up without animals or without playing in the garden. If they, if they go to the playground, but the playground is basically concrete with slides and 
and swings and tennis courts and basketball courts, it's not the same as playing on the earth and falling and getting the, the dirt that, you know, come into your face and on your fingers and, you know, and then all of a sudden something's in your mouth, you stick your finger in your mouth while you're introducing mother earth into your mouth. Well, is that good or is that bad? Okay. I mean, there's my mother would have said in her youth, that's bad. No dirt in your mouth, wash your hands. Yeah. You know, but now you get people like Dr. Axe writing books saying eat dirt, (laughs) you know, awaken your immune system. Contact yourself with Mother Earth because we are of it. Kids that play t- play spend time in the dirt in the garden, even if uh, the mother has said and the parents have said don't eat any dirt, the kid will. Like, and that's kind yeah. of the like get them in the dirt. It's funny because you're talking about this mother um, licking her child clean after birth, and I'm thinking. I, I have this reaction of like, oh, that doesn't sound right. And the same time, like, well, why does that sound right? That's probably right. <laughs> we just are so trained to think about dirt as bad. Exactly. Exactly. Well, she was the first one who licked her baby. Um, and I never used that word delicious again because I, I didn't want to uh, put a seed in somebody's brain uh, telling them to lick their baby. But I've had a few people... Um, uh, lick the hands of the baby. Yeah. Lick a little a couple of places on the head or the eyes. What about clearing out the nose? Little, they don't, you don't lick that away. That, uh, for the most part, um, that's done. If the baby's uh, phlegmy, usually the midwife or the physician will um, use a little bulb syringe and suction out that little bit. But yeah. for the most part, uh, babies don't have it in their nose. If they have it, it's usually in the trachea. Uh-huh. And uh, and so you want to, you know, there's a few ways that you can get it out. But most of the babies do just fine without having to deal with helping them breathe. Yeah. I mean, I've only had to help, a, I don't know, less than a dozen babies breathe. So you've delivered a few babies, yes? I haven't delivered that many babies. I've delivered a couple of hundred babies. But I've worked with over a thousand women. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I've, um, like the first 35 births that I did, I didn't catch the baby. It took me till my 36th birth before I caught a baby. And that was because I had had two healthy young women come to Alba Road, take the classes from me, and they didn't come to the post class to show their baby off. And I called them up, and two of the situations, the babies had died. The babies were very much alive when they went into labor, and they were each given um, medications to sedate them. The babies went into uh, distress. The babies were born uh, distressed, and they didn't survive. And then I went to see a baby born by the same doctor who killed these other two babies. And I use the word kill because he was a nightmare. And I witnessed him, I, I witnessed almost a demise. And that was my 35th birth. I remember I came out of the hospital. I called Ken on the phone. I didn't know how to drive yet. I called Ken to come and get me. And I was shaking and hysterically crying on the phone because of what I had witnessed. That particular birth was written up in a book called Immaculate Deception. I could actually, I can't send you that chapter unless I, what do you call it, um, 
took a picture of it because it was written long before computers. But I tell the story of that birth. And, and I came home and said, the next person who asks me to be with them at their home birth and they don't have anybody to help them, I'm going to say yes. Because I know one thing, I will not do harm. Mm-hmm. And this particular doctor was harming people. I mean, out of 35 babies, two of them were dead. Anyway, I don't know how many babies, yeah. because when I work in Canada, I was there for five years. I worked, the government was actually paying us and we were working to get licensure, but we were working with physicians and not that the physicians were at the birth, but I, I have no idea how many babies I delivered in Canada. Yeah. I mean, I just went every time I went to a birth and I'd write them up. But when I actually left Canada, I left all of my files with the birth center. And so I was never able to count them. Right. You know, before I went, I was up to a couple of hundred births in Santa Cruz. Then I went to Canada and I did births for five years up there. Then I came back and I did another seven years of birth in Santa Cruz. So that probably is another 70. Yeah. Well, Raven, the, one of the questions I have about home birth is that when you're an expecting parent and you know that sometimes, no matter how rare the chance is, something goes badly and a C-section might be needed or other medical stuff that you shouldn't probably do at home. That does happen sometimes. How risky is it and how do you assess that? And how do you tell parents, sure, if the worst happens, you should be at a hospital, but you really shouldn't be at a hospital. What's that conversation like? And in your experience, did you have emergencies that you needed to transport the, the you mom? Bet. Yeah. yeah, you bet. I mean, I had about, in overall, each year I would look at my transport or maybe every five years I would sit down and look and I had like a 5% transport. Now, for instance, Adri was a transport. Adri did not need to be a transport, but I was very young and I didn't have enough tricks up my sleeves to help your mother get through what she needed to get through. And because she was, she was very wrapped up in her head, she couldn't let go in a way that eventually I learned how to help people do that. But I think she was maybe the fourth birth, something like that, that I'd ever been to. Maybe the seventh, something like that. She was very early on. Uh, your mom, I remember she was not opening up. She was just not opening up. And then we went to the hospital. Peter Nash was there. He was a known figure, and she completely felt trustworthy of him. And she opened up like a flower. You know, she just needed something different. That was a transport. It didn't need to be a transport. There was no emergency, but there was something obstructing her to let go enough to give birth. That's a transport. Mm -hmm. If you're working and you're taking fetal heart tones and the fetal heart tones are saying, I'm distressed here, you transport. If the mother has been going on and on and on and she remains at the same sonometer, for too long, that's a transport. Mm -hmm. But you begin by not taking women who are not healthy, who don't have perfect blood work, perfect pelvis, a good-sized baby, no diabetes, no hypertension, 
no infection, um, etc. Okay, you you know, so not a hundred percent of people should be having their babies at home. Mm-hmm. And as you as you you know get your training, you realize that you have to exclude those people who have diabetes or hypertension. They they're not candidates for home birth. Mm. Okay, or if somebody's living four hours from the nearest hospital and there's no electricity and a phone won't work there, you'd say, you know, if you can't get a place closer to the hospital, you should not do have your baby at home. Because if something goes bad, you're too far away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're too far yeah. away. So I mean, you know, there's there's a protocol that that the mother has to follow and then there's a protocol that the practitioner, the midwife or the physician has to follow. And, you know, if something is not working, then you you get help, you know. And that and that more works now than before, too, because isn't there. So a couple questions there. It seems like now the hospital situation is so much better in general. Birth is a better experience in the medical space than it was in the 60s. Um, So it's a little bit less scary to you're not going to be tied down, for example. And you can say, I don't want drugs and they'll listen to you. <laughs> um, but the question I have is when you were doing these births, when you're practicing as a midwife in California in the 70s, 60s and 70s, was there a legal ramification of doing this? Was there something that was oh, like you bet. you at risk? You bet. It was illegal. It was completely illegal. What you need to maybe uh, interview Kate on the bus, 1974. The birth center was busted. Two uh, birth center was, was happening, and a woman came in. Um, I was I was living in Canada at the time, but I was down here. What year were you born, Lyle? 1974, in March, yeah. Okay, I was waiting on your birth. I was waiting on your birth when this happened, when the bus happened. And they were meeting, the birth center was meeting at Kate's house, and there were, I don't know, maybe five midwives who are trained and actively working as midwives in Santa Cruz and neighboring counties like, you know, Monterey and Salinas and so forth, people would come on a Wednesday and they would have their prenatal care. And um, a woman came in and uh, a few months before uh, your birth and she wanted to have a home birth and she was a pregnant lady and she didn't fit the bill. And so when the midwives were looking at the end of the day about this new patient, this new person, they said, hmm, she's kind of strange. And there was nothing wrong with her. She didn't have diabetes, et cetera. You know, she wasn't overweight or underweight or, you know, she was a perfectly healthy person. And um, But they had a feeling about her. Mm-hmm. And then she came a couple more times. She was fairly advanced in her pregnancy. She came a couple more times, and when they sat at the end of the day going through the charts, one of them said, I don't think we should be on call for her. She does not feel right. But, you know, the midwives were so loving and trusting. And so one night, uh, she calls one of them, and two of the midwives, who's Linda Bennett was one and the other one's name I don't remember. And they went off to her labor and they walked into the house and they noticed that the house was kind of strange, like it didn't look like anybody was quote unquote living there. As soon as they walked in the door, there were two men there. 
and they handed them whatever, 50 bucks or something. They handed them some money. And the midwife, one of them just took the money. None of us had um, a fee. None of us had a fee. And they took the money and said, where is she? And they said, down at the end of the hall on the right. And so they just walked down to the hall, turned right, and there they, the FBI or the police or whoever it was busted the two women. And then uh, that happened to be a Wednesday morning. They knew that the birth center was going to happen on Wednesday because this woman had been going there. Yeah. And so I happened to call Kate around 10 o'clock in the morning. Because I was here waiting on you guys. It was the, maybe the first or second week that I was in California. And I thought, I think I'm going to go to the birth center today, you know, see all my girlfriends and meet the people. And, um, and I called up and Kate answered the phone. And I said, hi, Kate, it's Raven. I'm thinking of coming down today. And she said, oh, Jesus. She said, they're here. I said, who's here? She said, the pigs. <laughs> I said, you're kidding. The pigs used to be the police. Yes. I said, you're kidding. She says, no, I'm not. And I could tell by her voice that she was not kidding. And I said, what are they doing? And she said, they are combing my house with a fine tooth comb. They're even taking Kotex's diapers and tampons and putting it as evidence. And I said, okay. I hung up the phone. I called Santa Cruz Sentinel. I called Sundays. That was the uh, sort of the, the good the good times, the Another famous day, yeah. the good times. It was like the good times. It was called Sundays, S U N D A Z E, as I recall. And I called um, the local radio station, and I said, two hundred eight Escalona. There's a bus happening at the birth center, <laughs> and I went down there. And there were, there were, and media was there already. I was way up near Jarvis where your mother was pregnant with yeah. you. I was up on Branch of 40. I, I was way up, way up on Branch of 40. And um, it was very cold. And I had long black hair, but I had it up in this little toque that I wore, which is what they wear in Canada. It's a little, um, knitted hat that comes down to your ears and I had I had just taken my hair put it on top of my head clipped it and put the toque on took my coat which, which had a big collar so that the neck was kind of uh, you couldn't see the neck and I went down to the birth center and uh, they had a picture of Raven Lang only I had black hair way mm. you know long black hair and I had on a poncho in this photograph, they had interviewed me in the Santa Cruz Sentinel one day and talking about the legality of birth. So they had that article with the photograph. And a lot of people knew who I was, but a lot of people didn't because I'd been in Canada for a couple of years already. And they were going, do you know who this is? Do you know? We're looking for the ringleader. We're looking. They called me the ringleader. <laughs> they came right up to me with a picture of me. And he said, we're looking for her, the ringleader. Do you, have you seen her? And I said, no. <laughs> and they went to the next person. <laughs> Meanwhile, I saw them arrest Kate because she was giving them lip. And so they had already arrested They had Janine and the other lady. Janine was her name, Janine and Linda. 
And then they got a hold of Kate and they arrested them for practicing medicine without a license. So that would be another very interesting interview yeah. that we could do. But we knew at the time, and, you know, it's like for all of those births, I was just telling your mom the other day, I think in the first 100 births, the 150 births that I did before I went to Canada, I only got three gifts. Okay, I mean, one of them was some flowers, one of them was a dress, and one of them was two framed canvases because I was a painter. Mm. And other than that, nobody so much as wrote a thank you note or gave me anything. It was a giveaway. What midwifery was in the 60s and 70s and um, early 70s was a complete giveaway. Were what most of the midwives also mothers who realized when they needed to help make it better for people? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They were, many of them were mothers who were, had been traumatized and said, I, I got to fix this. So it was a mission. It wasn't about making money or any of that. It was a mission to make it better for people. No, no. We wanted to get legal so we could make money because we knew it was basically, you know, sucking away our cheese, so to speak. Yeah. You know, you go to a birth and you're there 24 hours and you you prepare them for 10, 15 hours before you see them after you help them if their breasts get engorged or if the baby's umbilical gets funky. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of time that you put into each and every birth. Yeah. And so we needed, you know, I mean, I was dirt poor. We were, we were very poor. You lived in a chicken coop. I lived in a chicken coop and I did not take welfare and I did not take Medi-Cal. I wanted nothing to do with government money. I didn't want them putting a ring through my nose. Yeah. I, I needed to be my own independent self and I needed to take care of my own independent self. That was something my mother gave me. My mother never, my mother was very poor, but she wanted nothing to do with free money from the government. And somehow she instilled that in me. When was it that um, midwives to be licensed and could practice and all that? When did that happen? It was after 85. I think it, I think it was 87 or 88. So late. You know who else, you know who else would be excellent for you to interview is Karen Ehrlich. She's got the history down. Carolyn's been on top of my mind for an interview for this series, um, but I was actually going to talk about sex education. Well, how interviewer twice. Yeah, I want you to get the history. Yeah, you get the history because more than anybody I know, she's got that history down, and she's very on top of it. And she still is, to my knowledge, she might still be going to Sacramento uh, for the meetings that they have on legislation. She's never let go of that. Yeah. I did not know it was so late. I didn't know it was until the 80s that that you could. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Wow. You could have become a certified nurse midwife. So, for instance, Kate went to school. She became a nurse. And then she went for, for graduate school. She became a certified nurse midwife. But I, I remember feeling that Marshall L. Klaus was right on when he said, keep your mind open. Don't just get the prepared mind of the medical teaching or you won't be able to think creatively in the same way. Mm. And so number one, I didn't want their protocol to interfere with my intelligence and curiosity. And second of all, it is a sub profession. You always have to um, default to a physician. When you're a nurse midwife. 
when you're a nurse midwife, when the midwives have been fighting forever to get out of physician supervision. Yeah. It's been a huge fight with, I don't know how much money has been pushed into that to get out from under uh, physician supervision. And I knew that way back when I did not want a physician to tell me what to do. Right. I wanted to be able to make my own assessment. Like I would bring a woman into a hospital and I would say, there's been we had three D cells on this fetal heart. And the last one went down to 120 and lasted for 10 minutes. I transported as a result. And they would say, well, they wouldn't take that down. They would, they'd say, we will make that decision, dear. Oh. Or they wouldn't say, dear, we will make that decision. And then they'd let her, they do the whole admission, which would take an hour. They'd put her into a room. And then somebody would come in. Meanwhile, we've lost two hours, two and a half hours. Oh. You could have lost a baby by then. I wanted to be able to walk in and say, we've got fetal D-cells. This lady needs to be assessed staff and present right. to say yes and take her in for an assessment. That's why I didn't want to become a nurse midwife. I didn't want to have to default to a doctor. Wasn't that also about sexism? I mean, you as a yeah, man going in there yeah, might have been listened yeah. to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Raven, thank you for spending the morning with me. Well, yes, it's been a, a walk down memory lane. It's been lovely. You know, I got to tell you something that I always remember as a child that you weren't, you didn't deliver me and that you were called away. And I always put together that you had to go to the birthday party for your son. And I don't think that's really been a resentment, but it is something that comes to mind that you weren't, you didn't deliver me. And there was complications. And I did go to the hospital who was bleeding and such. What's, do you remember the story of that day? Oh yeah. Oh, I don't remember your story as much. I remember your mother your mother had your dates completely wrong and she insisted that I go down when I did because she was going to deliver then. And so I was there for at least five weeks. Leaving your job in Canada. I left my job in Canada. I left my home. I left Lang. I flew down on my own and I was here for Kitty was having a baby. Your mother was having a baby and a lady named Karen was having a set of twins at Stanford and invited me to um, witness. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was there to witness her children. Gabe and Summer, they used to come and visit the people who lived downstairs from the big house at Alba Road. Okay. But that was before your mom moved there. So. so I was invited to that birth. And there was one other birth that I was going to that I can't remember. So I had like five babies that I was supposed to be there. And they were all due within about three weeks. And your mother made me come down really early. And so I was there for five weeks. And I said, as, as March was going on, I said, Diana, I'm going to go back on the 18th. I'm flying back because Lang's going to be born. Lang's going to have a birthday. And I want to be there for that. And she said, yeah. okay. And there was somebody else who was going to take my place. Yeah. I don't remember her name. See, as a child, I never realized you lived out of the country. <laughs> That makes a lot yeah. more sense. <laughs> yeah, I lived out of the country. For me, you know, you were always really nearby. Yeah. As a child, yeah. Yeah. I loved what you said about Alba Road. And, <sighs> you know, that's another whole conversation that would be very interesting to have an interview with several people who lived there. You know, you talked about the time or the place or the people yeah. and, you know, 
It's, uh, but that's another whole conversation. It was a magical place, definitely. So, okay, dear. Well, thank you so much, Raven. What a pleasure. Really appreciate this. Um, nice to talk with you. Much love. Okay, much love to you too. Bye-bye. <laughs>